Welcome back to the Demystify Sci podcast. I'm Anastasia. I'm Michael Shadow. And today we are talking to philosopher Philip Goff about his ideas about panpsychism, meaning, and the universe. We don't necessarily deal too much with the foundational principles of panpsychism because that's something that you can probably get from a lot of the other conversations that Philip has had on other podcasts and by reading his book. What we always try to do is we try to delve into the the ideas that fall between the lines. And so Philip's working on a new book that is out at, I think, the end of the year towards November, which is dealing with a different question than his previous work. It's about the teleological purpose of the universe. Why is it? Why are we? And so we talk a lot about the construction of meaning, about the role of religion, about the organization of society, and the inextricably, the inextricable role that consciousness plays in that. Towards the end of the conversation, we really delve into this question of why are we conscious? Not necessarily from an evolutionary standpoint, but from the standpoint of philosophically asking the question, if physics governs everything and you can derive all of the behaviors that we have from physics, why do we have an internal experience? What is it about the universe that has molded us to have something that is so weird and unique and complex? And understanding this seems more important now than ever. As we've moved away during the Enlightenment years, we moved away from religion, we moved away from organizing principles, and we've drifted towards this rational understanding of the universe, integrating in our motivational structures into our behaviors seems absolutely critical for not only our survival, but our, I like the word, thrival in the future. <laughs> and I think that this is the tip of an iceberg that we're going to just keep exploring with more and more people that are coming to our attention. And so this conversation was a really good primer into that entire universe of questions. Yeah, we have Anil Seth coming on a little bit down the road, and so I think we'll get to continue with him. But we have, we have big plans. So as always, if you like what we do, tell your friends, leave a comment, share the episode. If you've done all of those things, consider joining our Patreon. For $3 a month, you can support the project, allowing us to work towards having live interviews, towards being able to grow a foundation that's giving grants for interesting work, for doing things outside of the academy that have historically been out of reach for everyone who is interested but is constrained by questions of costs and the, the, the need for basic necessities. Yeah, all those, all, all those dollars are really adding up to something where we can hopefully make structures that are parallel to the existing structures that we continually find issue with. So I think a lot of podcasters that we know of are starting to do this, and we're all moving towards this idea that new institutions need to be built alongside of the crumbling ones, and that's really the best hope we have for the future. So help us out. Let's make it happen all together. The scientific revolution starts now. Well, I've just finished a book that took me about a year on um, it's quite a different topic. It involves panpsychism at various points, but the big theme is something quite new and different. And basically, I'm arguing that the universe has a purpose, which mm. uh, uh, in the sense that there is 
some kind of goal-directedness or what people sometimes call teleology at the fundamental level of reality. So, I mean, generally people who think there's a point to the universe will attach that to God in the traditional sense, but I don't like that hypothesis either Mm. because, so I guess that... where I've, where I've been led to with this is really, I think there's, everyone thinks you have to fit into one of those categories, you know, either you believe in God in the traditional sense, or you're a sort of Richard Dawkins atheist. Mm-hmm. And I guess I've come to think there's things both these views can't explain. So with the traditional God, it's the the old issue of evil and suffering. It doesn't seem to me plausible that uh, an all-powerful loving God would create a universe with so much suffering in. Uh, But on the other hand, I think there's things the traditional atheist can't explain, perhaps most notably the um, fine-tuning in physics for life, which I could perhaps talk about at more length, Um, and certain things to do with consciousness, the uh, mystery of psychophysical harmony that some people are talking about right now that I think is going to change the world ultimately. Uh, so, so what I think, I guess, is that there's a there's this huge middle ground uh, between these two options of traditional God or atheism, uh, traditional God, traditional atheism that's unexplored. And I think we need a hypothesis that, it, that can account for both of these things. On the one hand, the fine tuning and physics. On the other hand, the things that seem arbitrary and cruel about our universe we need a hypothesis that can account for all of these so yeah that's what i try to do in my latest book and it's a relief to get that over with i imagine that (laughs) it's going to make a lot of people really 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 upset (laughs) or happy (laughs) it seems like the the world needs it (laughs) actually this is what i found i always hate the dichotomies you know with with my work in philosophy of mind it's about the dichotomy of which which I was taught when I was studying philosophy were the only two options, you know, is consciousness sort of magical and mysterious in the soul or is it just electrochemical signaling in the brain? You know, which, which, whose side are you on? Which team are you in? And then, you know, you take the middle ground option, you piss off both sides. In a way, in a way you piss people, that people hate you more than their opponent because at least with their familiar opponent, you know, they know the drill. Do you know what I mean? They know. The it's like so fundamentally it. human. It's the same in politics too. It's like mm-hmm. what the world needs more than anything is a really strong center, but that's a very tribalist position to find yourself in, in any of these. Yeah. And in science. In politics. Yeah. It's uh, you know, are you a U.S. capitalist or a USSR, USSR <laughs> communist, you know? Uh, but also, I mean, politics, I guess it's funny though that the center moves, doesn't it? You know? So, um, so where where the, where the center ground is changes in um I mean I've got a guy who's um a friend of mine in his seventies who um is an old school conservative like from before Margaret Thatcher and his politics on cultural issues he's quite quite far right <laughs> in some ways uh, but on economic issues he's sort of the extreme left of the Labour Party you know so it's quite funny how I think maybe culturally things have moved to the left economically they move to the right i don't know mm. anyway it's weird how, how people will find themselves going in with you know they might side with the right or left on some issue and then they sort of 
atrophy their concerns that aren't coherent with that position. It's like they, they find themselves eventually just kind of being like, well, I'm not going to concern myself with these things that contradict because I have a tribe. Other, if I stick with this yeah. one point, then I can at least it's have hard. a group of people around me. And, and like a teleological yeah. view of the universe where there is a point to all of this, I imagine upsets everybody because if you're not going whole hog, it's the work of God. And if you are suggesting that, you know, a physicalist materialist universe has some kind of point, then you're upsetting all of the Dakinites because how, how could this mass of stuff mean anything? Yeah, and I mean, you're right, Shiloh. Go, I'll go back to both those points, really, that, you know, people do this and fit into the tribes. But in a way, it's human, it's hard to just assess every issue, isn't it? You know, work every single issue out. Yourself. So it's natural for people to fit back into these. But then coming to Anastasia's point, um, you know, the Enlightenment aim was supposed to be we look at the evidence and and we follow the evidence where it leads but i think at the same time the enlightenment came with a picture of how the how science is supposed to look and it's just very hard for human beings to do that and um, the economist keynes famously said you know when people said to him you didn't used to think that and he said, well, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? You know, but I think it's so hard for human beings to do that. So my own view is that uh, our cu current outlook is the fact, it arises from the fact that for over 100 years after Darwin, there was no scientific evidence for God or anything like God for cosmic purpose in any sense. And so we got into our minds this idea, you know, Science has ruled out anything like that. You know, it's all just uh, mathematical laws and we've moved beyond that. And I think since the 1970s, the ev with, with the emergence of fine-tuning in physics, the evidence has started to change. But I think we're, it's hard for the culture to catch up with that. And I think we're in a period of history where people are sort of in a bit, a bit in denial about it because it's, it's, it's not how it was supposed to be, you know? I mean, it's so... You know, I think it's a little bit like in the 16th century when we first started getting evidence that um, we weren't in the center of the universe. And people struggled to accept that because it didn't fit with the picture of reality they've been used to for hundreds of years. And we, th we look back and scoff at that, don't we? We think, oh, they were so stupid and religious. And why didn't they just follow the evidence? But I think every generation absorbs a worldview where you feel silly if you say something different. You know, I'm, I'm arguing about this stuff in conferences and stuff. I, do, I feel silly because, you know, <laughs> I feel like, you know, it's, it, it feels silly to me because that goes against the culture, you know, that I've swam in and so on. But I, d I really do feel it would be intellectually dishonest of me. I really do feel a cold-blooded look at the evidence. Um, that, that seems to me what it suggests to me. And I'm just... Well, there's a Not funny thing about that. evidence, right? Like, if you have, think about it as a court trial where you put all the evidence on the table in discovery. 
But then the, there's a really brilliant step which is often neglected, which is the interpretive level at which the theorist puts the evidence together to make a particular case. And what's really maybe the blind spot here is that multiple stories can be woven from the same pile of evidence. And so yeah. oftentimes the fundamental change that needs to happen is a reassessment of basic you know, evidentiary material. And that's a very difficult thing to do, going back to what you were saying about the culture. I certainly imagine that an enlightened, advanced culture would have the ability to celebrate the change of mind that's necessary sometimes. But in, our current, mm -hmm. in the current academic structures that we all swim in, it's tantamount to death to change your mind on a theory that you've been defending your whole life. I think that this goes a lot deeper than just academic theories, though, because sure. I think that the idea, I mean, this is, this is a philosophical placement of humans and, and life in the cosmos in antithesis to what people have come to believe, which is that there is no meaning. You know, we have a, people always talk about the crisis of meaning and there's this terrible crisis of meaning and, you know, the death of religion has given people a lack of, of things to believe in and so everybody's unhappy. But I think that people have actually quite firmly and happily grasped onto the idea that there's no point to life because if there's no point to life, then the actions have no consequence and there's, there's this removal of responsibility and there's an ease of living. And so when you show up and you're like, hey, hold on a second, what if the evidence is actually pointing to the fact that there is a point to life and it is actually meaningful and it is extraordinarily substantive and it's not just this inevitable heat death of the universe that we're speeding towards where everything will cool into silence and darkness. That's a, that's a shift that is very hard for people to accept, not just within the academy, but within their heart of hearts. Because they've yeah. spent so long believing in it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, people talk of religion as a crutch and something you need to believe. But I think a certain kind of scientism connected to a certain conception of how science is supposed to be can get into people's identity in a very deep way and your sense of who you are and you know oh i'm on the side of progress and not those idiots who are stuck in the stone age or if you think of someone like daniel dennett who i love you know he's a great philosopher i spent a week on a boat with him in the arctic and we had lots of good conversations but i think that kind of whole it is almost religious the sort of that identifying in, in, in that way. But yeah, I mean, these do, I mean, so most of this book is um, just building the cold-blooded scientific and philosophical case. But obviously with these kinds of deep questions about meaning, you're, you are going to want to explore the implications for human existence. And, and I suppose what I say is that I take a, again, a sort of middle ground option. Uh, you know, you get some people who say, if there's no purpose to the universe, it's all pointless. You know, the, the Christian philosopher William Lane Craig says, you know, we might as well kill each other if God doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And also, actually, the, uh, the atheist philosopher David Benatar, who's a very interesting figure, the, who's an anti-natalist, who thinks um, human existence is so meaningless that he doesn't think we should kill ourselves. Now we're here, we should carry on. But he thinks it's, it's immoral to have children. We should, we should let the race die out. And so he thinks, you know, human existence is, is because it lacks cosmic significance in part, um, 
it's just not worth it fundamentally. So that's one extreme. Other extreme is you sort of radical humanist who says, it's just totally irrelevant whether there's a purpose to the universe. You know, it's all we can get on and make our own meaning. I, I adopt a sort of middle way position that I think if there's no purpose to the universe, I think we can still live somewhat meaningful lives through kindness and creativity and learning. But if there does turn out to be a, a purpose to existence, then I think that offers the potential for a somewhat more meaningful way of living. Um, you know, we want to make a difference, right? We want our lives to make a difference, um, make a contribution. If, in principle, you could make a contribution in some small way to the purposes of the whole of reality, then that's about as, as big a difference as you can hope for. But I mean, at this point, it's, it's, it's all getting very speculative. And, um, but I think, you know, you only live once and to some extent it can be rational to, to hope beyond the evidence and to um, see your life in a meaningful context that you're not certain about, but you can find some meaning from engaging with. And so, you know, I think there's potentially a meaningful way of living your life on this basis. Hmm. For me, this seems to come down to miscomprehension of the concept of God in some sense, because I'm sure you're familiar with Jung or Joseph Campbell or Peterson, who are looking at this concept of God as sort of the sum total of not only what will inevitably happen, but how it could happen in the best possible sense. And, and from like the Jungian perspective, you have all of these subroutines that are going on and these demigods that are warring inside of you and you have to sort of master them and bring them together into this coherent vision of yourself. And kind of the idea is that that is God. And if we all pursued that in our own lives, we would you know, be moving towards something approximating heaven, which I think is a, an interesting rationalization of the concept because there's the thing that people that I see reacting to negatively about God is, is the silly superstitious idea that there's a, a Superman in the sky pulling strings. Mm -hmm. But if you are able to really abstract that back into what the hell were these people on about for thousands and thousands of years? It must have been important. It, it doesn't really make sense that they were just a, a bunch of, you know, rednecks coming up with crazy superstitious ideas. They, they were too powerful of civilizations to have been morons. They must have meant something more. And um, mm. I think that the word itself, the word God itself is just completely disintegrated in the modern age. And, but but the, the need, that deep need for, for purpose and meaning and striving is real. And people get sick without it, for sure. Mm -hmm. And so that's one thing I love about bringing the scientific angle like you're doing to this, where you're, you're actually coming up with rationalizations for purpose, honestly, and for, for the universe as a whole, right? And I think that's really beautiful, but I, I do think it sort of centers around this this confusion about the concept of God it's, itself. That's really interesting. I mean, yeah, I think I first started thinking about this, actually teaching philosophy of religion to undergraduate philosophy students here, you know, and you go through the arguments for the existence of God and you go through the arguments against and you're supposed to say, you know, which, which ones do you think are right? But I came to realize, actually, 
I th- for first I thought, actually, I think these are both pretty plausible. And then I realized, actually, they're not contradicting. Because what the arguments against God are arguing against is a very, very specific idea of God. What philosophers sometimes call the omni-God, all-knowing, all-powerful, perfectly good, omnipotent, omniscient, it's all the omnis. Um, you know, so the argument is that doesn't fit with the universe as we find it. The arguments for God are not that specific. They're pointing to something. Well, it depends which argument we're looking at, of course, but at least, for example, the fine-tuning in physics, some kind of goal-directedness or some kind of cosmic purpose or something. And so you can accept both of these if you accept something godish, but not that very specific idea of God. And mm. also, I mean, what, what you're saying there connects with um, another theme of the book. So I say that, you know, the final chapter I'm discussing um, implications for human existence. And I discuss non-literalist approaches to traditional religion. So I'm actually a church-going person myself, which is incredibly unusual in the UK for someone my age. But I think for me, it's not what what, what the, the beliefs are not the be-all and end-all. For me, it's about, you know, connecting to my community, connecting to a tradition, uh, connecting to something greater than myself. Religion, we've come used to thinking of religion as, you know, what do you believe, you know, call religious people believers. But religion is about much more than that. It's about spiritual practice and marking the seasons um, and rites and rituals and practices that bring communities together across space and across time. And, um, you know, and I think those those things, as you say, in uh, for tens of thousands of years, there's been something like that that connects communities together and connects them to something greater than themselves. Um, well, it's that ordering way, principle. You know, it's the order. You, you said cosmos, and cosmos means order. And it's like, these right. are the things yeah. that order our lives and hopefully order them in the best of ways because the things that order them in the worst of ways really can't be thought of in any other way than hell or something evil, right? If you mm-hmm. think about... I mean, I hate to bring up the Nazis so early in this conversation, but if you think about something like the Nazis or Stalin, very ordered, very, very ordered, but ordered in the worst of ways possibly conceivable to us in our modern age. And so if you think about God as that which is ordering and that that is this this bringing together these communities around values that are hopefully moving the whole civilization into a new realm, you, you end up with something quite rational, actually, and something I personally believe very strongly is is worth getting behind and, and celebrating. I think yeah, it's exactly. antithetical to, to freedoms, though, for some people, right? Where it's mm. when you enter into a community, we were just talking about this this morning, where you enter into a community and you the community is bounded by the shared belief structures and the limits on what it is that you can believe and still be a part of that community. And I think that people are drawn towards ultimate liberty in the sense of not being bounded by anyone's judgment of what can and cannot be believed in. And so you have in conflict these two very strong desires, one which is liberty and enlightenment and freedom and the biocosmist ideal of live forever, go anywhere, be anything that is in direct conflict with the fact that, hey, 
the ability to do all of those things and the ability to have those freedoms is the very thing that gives you this yawning, deep sense of agony inside the spirit because meaning comes actually from pruning the tree of possibility. And share, yeah. sharing, sharing with sharing. Yeah, and, sh- and sharing in that pruning together. It's this, it's this group project of we will believe in these things and we will not believe in these other things and the belief we will all sort of sink our teeth into and we'll but hold on to almost nobody it. in any civilization wouldn't orient themselves towards something better. Like the idea of God unanimously seems, I mean, of course there's demigods that are warring, but the supreme God that people are aiming towards seems to be something like the best possible way of behaving yourself. Mm-hmm. which I guess is in some sense culturally dependent, but overall you, you see the same morals cropping up as pillars, you know, especially in terms of not offing one another, which is probably the first thing you got to establish out of the jungle. If you're uh, setting up a new society, it's like, <sighs> we need also, to not steal yeah. from each other. We need to not kill each other. Uh, there's like, there's, a, there's also the aspect of reproduction that comes into this. Cause you mm. mentioned the antinatalists, but I think mm. that there's even a deeper fact that permeates even those who maybe have just one child, where it used to be that family and reproduction was central to your identity. And so the rights and rules and guidances were based in terms of your reproductive roles. But as those reproductive roles shift or they fade or they change, all of the sudden, the structure that once was good for 10,000 years because it was taken as a given that you would reproduce and you would reproduce at maximum possible capacity needs to be updated in order to account for the massive shift in the risk, reward, and preferences that surround reproduction. Yeah. No, I think that's it's all part of it, isn't it? It's I think... I, I guess I firmly believe, you know, no person is an island. We do, the very way we see the world is 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 culturally conditioned, is culturally defined in terms of, in, in these subtle ways that we almost don't notice, you know, that from the, the, the way you read words to the way you hear voices to the to what meanings mean to you. And as you say, the, the social roles you feel yourself bound to. So actually what I what I try to defend in the book I'm going to I'm going to say it's a middle way again <laughs> it's always a middle way is you know I think um th- there's two extreme ways you can respond to your cultural conditioning one is the the punk way you know to say right screw it all you know we're going to tear it up and you know I'm a huge fan of the original punk bands but the problem with that is it's it's not sustainable because it very quickly becomes another fashion in its own right, you know, which sort of defies the whole point of it, you know, and the rebellious clothing becomes the the fashion of the next generation, right? Mm-hmm. So, but the other extreme is where you just the the banal, the boring, you just blandly, blindly follow your cultural conditioning, and you can't see through it. And you know, the extremes of this are intense racism and bigotry where you just you know you you can't you see the other as just unintelligible in some sense so i think the middle way is to work with your cultural conditioning because you you can never escape it but to try and undo it from within to reveal the emptiness within and this i think this is what great art does if you think i'm i'm from liverpool the hometown of the beatles i think yeah. you know they took rock and roll music and they 
did new things with it that had never been done before. And in that way, you sort of undo the medium from within. And you so you're undoing your cultural conditioning from within. Of course, hallucinogens do this at a sort of like um, an intense pace. But I think all art and culture and just good living um, creativity has that way. So you're not you're not giving in to your cultural conditioning, but you're you're not pretending you can just overcome it. And insofar as we are bound to our cultural conditioning it's important to have institutions and um, structures and rights that bring the community together in a positive way. But I, I mean, I appreciate Anastasia's point, you know, that people do, can feel bound by beliefs. I mean, so I'm, I'm part of the, the church. I love the Church of England because I think it's the least ideological church because uh, I guess it was because it was the, the king wanting a divorce why we had this church in the first place and so it's it's just kind of like catholicism without without all the ideologies mostly based around drinking tea you know and there's <laughs> i mean it's huge it's incredibly broad so there are this sort of conservative evangelical wings and there, there are very high catholic wings that bow to statues of mary but you know your average church is just about bringing people together and it's very undogmatic and very marking the seasons bringing the community together thinking what can we do in our community and i'm focusing on certain values i suppose i don't mean to make this all about religion but uh you know what i like about christianity i don't really i don't know if it's true you know it was a couple of thousand years ago it's hard you know who knows but i like the uh sort of inversion of worldly values that you know we're holding up this kind of not the king in the castle but this naked executed peasant who you know hung out with the outcasts and was born in a barn and stuff that that and that inversion of worldly values and is you mm. know to center your value on caring for the poor and the outcasts and the refugee uh and you know that that's the weak um <sighs> you know so so that's what i value about it bringing people together around those solid values I think that's the that's that's what all of these cultures across time have been striving for. Uh, I was looking at the Sumerian myth, their creation myth, uh, for this closing down this cosmology course that I was teaching, and it's wild because they also have, you know, not a Jesus, but they have this guy named Marduk, who's who the leaders of the civilization are supposed to embody. They literally, you know, as in many ancient civilizations, the kings are also supposed to be the deities. And the deities reflect these, these impossible people, almost like, in our case, Christ, uh, that's kind of impossible, right? He's this endlessly charitable, turn the other cheek, do the right thing all the time. He ends up getting nailed to a cross for it, which is kind of what happens to if you if you live that out. And so Marduk is also this incredible organism who can see in all directions, and he has perfect speech, and he does the right thing and slays all the beasts, and, and every civilization seems to orient itself towards one of these impossible figures. And it's interesting what you said about the artists being able to convey some of these, these deeper, meaningful truths about reality. Because I see, as an artist myself, I see being, being an artist and having done it professionally and lived through that, it's like you're really, as an artist, sacrificing yourself to this to this goal, because most artists, let's face it, 
I, I don't know anyone actually, well, very, very, very few artists are able to make their way in the world of material stuff. It's, it's mostly people grinding around, trying to live outside of society to, to make the next Beatles, right? You have to get away from everything that binds you to a society and you, you're on the outside and it's very, it's often destroys the people who do it. Um, and so there, there's something very, I mean, it's very I, melodramatic, but there's something very Christ-like or, or Marduk-like about going down that path and knowing that, well, your chances of having any game in this world are very small, but people do it anyways. <laughs> they know that they have to. They're dr driven. They, they're tuned into something. But I think that to bring this back to the analogy of the punk scene, for example, right? The punk mm. scene is the scene that turns away from everything and lives in this destructive, burn-it-all-down, anarchic way. And it's a scene that dies, right? Punk is dead is is a cliche because it's true. There's not that many people that are able to maintain the purity of rejection of convention for a very long time because the end result is living in a squat hovel without running water or heat. Like that's where you go if you live fully to the embodiment of that artistic form. And I think that what's so hard is to find an art that allows you to live fully as the embodiment of what that art is aiming for and have that not destroy you in the process. Because most art is not aspirational. We love dystopian narratives. We love darkness. We love the tales of the of the romantic losers, of the lovelorn women, of the highwaymen and the the priestesses that are that are casting dark spells, we're not really able to reproducibly create art that is aspirational where when the artists live that life, they don't inevitably aim downwards in this terrible self-destructive Yeah, that's art. what drove me out of professional music originally is I was just like, I can't live like this. Like you spend yeah. all night up, you know, networking is essentially what you're doing. Uh, you spend all day waiting to play a show. It's it's very taxing, and like of course the, the substance abuse and just the, li the lifestyle is impossible. Mm. Everybody's absolutely broke, poor, and making up for it however they can. And and uh, honestly, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, 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 go. On. Um, yeah, I mean, I I I think there's a really good case actually for just taking arts and entertainment just totally out of the market. I mean, mm. I mean, I guess like politically, I'm, I'm sort of, again, it's the, I'm not, um, an anti-capitalist in the sense of let's get rid of capitalism overnight. Uh, but I think, you know, if you think about the last 70 years, for the 30 years after the war, after the horrors of the two world wars, what we worked towards was a, a progressively kind of decommodified form of capitalism. You know, we, um, you know, in, in Britain, we took major industries, just nationalized them, took them out of the market. We got the NHS. In, in, in Britain and the US, we had incredibly high rates of tax on the wealthy. The average rate of tax in the US between uh, 1930 and 1980 was 81%. In the UK, it was 89%. And it worked, right? I think lots of people have forgotten this. It didn't, this was the most, it didn't destroy the economy. This was the most dynamic economy we've ever had, the so-called golden age of capitalism. 
uh, society got massively more unequal for basically the first time. Sorry, massively more equal, basically the the first time in history. And then the forty years after that, sort of eighties to the present day, we kind of went tried what tried out Wild West capitalism. You know, sort of slashed all the regulations. Um, you know, slashed those high higher tax rates on the wealthy and massive inequality crisis after crisis 2008 the sort of world brought to its knees so i i mean i i think that 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 project after the world after the second world war was was going somewhere of what the economist thomas piketty calls decommodify decommodifying the economy so not you know you don't know what's going to work not just sort of soviet style let's just start everything year zero tomorrow but trying things out you know maybe we can take adverts out of public squares maybe we can take healthcare and education totally out of out of the market and i think what a really good case is with arts and entertainment with advance of technology with streaming podcasting uh you know you can just cut and paste whole albums you know it it, it sort of no longer makes sense for these things to be part of capitalism so i mean to take an analogy right i'm an academic as as a university le- lecturer i'm not just paid to teach that's part of my job but i'm paid to write philosophy you know i'm paid by the state to write philosophy i would be up for just having all arts and entertainment free at the point of delivery but we we pay people a proper salary from the state from the community for arts and entertainment on a on a competitive basis kind of like you do with academics right i'm employed on a competitive basis to write philosophy i would like to see that with all arts and entertainment and what's coming out now is people like thomas piketty yanis varifakas coming out with these very specific ways of potentially moving society forward in these ways beginning a process to move our society slowly towards something better and um I, I think people are in some way yearning, crying out for for this, you know, something that makes sense of their lives for a sense that we're moving beyond where we are right now. I don't think in 5,000 years we're going to be still in a sort of market economy like we have now. Yeah. Human society that's, always that's has so to important. move on. That's I, I love that. You have to, I love the idea of whenever you're aiming towards something, imagining what it could look like 5,000 years from now. That's just a, mm, yeah. it really changes yeah, if, like all policy decisions, just exactly. everything that it comes up, just be like, well, where exactly. does this tend towards, you know? That's what Sowell calls have... second order thinking. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's uh, in yeah. economics terms where Sowell talks all the time, how people enact economic policies for the things that they wish that they will bring about rather than thinking about the things that they will actually bring about and so you can have like a you can have a short term benefit but that short term benefit doesn't play out in the long run once you actually allow the simulation to go out long enough where you start to see all the second order effects of the immediate uh, consequences mm yeah that's a really good way of thinking about it and i just have to say what one one policy proposal i really like of uh, piketty is universal inheritance Right. So, you know, we have a society where, you know, we all supposedly believe in equality of opportunity, but obviously, you know, some people, because their parents were very lucky or whatever, or were, you know, were very successful, inherit huge amounts, whereas some people are born with absolutely nothing or worse than nothing. So, Piketty envisages a, a very significant wealth tax to fund 
uh, each citizen on their 20, 21st birthday gets sixty percent of national wealth to start them off in life. No, uh, so, I, I mean, the the only danger that creeps into my I love these ideas. By the way, I, I love the idea of artists being able to uncouple from profit. But one thing that worries me, and it worries me about the academic structure too, is that you do end up with gangs. And, you, and at the end of the day, somebody has to make a decision of who gets the money and who doesn't get the money. And But this would be a decision that everybody gets the money. Oh, that one's great. Yeah, I was just thinking about how to, you know, I was thinking about funding artists based on yeah. merit. And yeah. of course, art is a strange thing because the things that are terribly unpopular can become wildly popular overnight. And uh, honestly, science is too. If you think about some of the biggest paradigm shifts that we've experienced since the Enlightenment. You know, Copernicus sat on his manuscript his entire life. Darwin sat on his manuscript his entire life. These people were very afraid of rocking the boat and probably realized it wouldn't have worked. And so ended up essentially self-publishing those things on their deathbeds. Now, and that brings us back to this crisis of how to incentivize mind changes at very fundamental level, because in a competition sense, like we're talking about, there's no incentive to do anything but what is popular. Uh, well, I don't know about no incentive, but it's it's certainly not the safe way to go. Yeah, no, I I I see all. I really do see all the the worries you're talking about. And I mean, will any human society ever be perfect? There's always these worries. There, <laughs> you always need to have checks and balances. Um, but I mean, I would say two things. Firstly, you want to have things as local as possible. You know, mm. you want to have power. I think power makes sense more at a global level and at a very local level. I think, you know, global level because we live in a global world. Um, and if you don't have sort of power at a global level, you've got big corporations running the world as we currently have. Uh, but also at a local level where people feel it and they can feel they have a stake. And that was probably the the, the main problem with the project as it was realized in the UK for all its successes after the Second World War, it was very state-run, top-down, you know. And I think a lot of these kind of more radical planning now is much more bottom-up, getting people having feeling involved, feeling they have a stake. So that's one thing. I mean, the other thing is, and it, but it, I, I think, and I guess I think the academic model doesn't work too badly. Obviously, there's all sorts of problems uh we could go through but it doesn't work too badly and i suppose the alternative is i think i mean is it is it possible for any artist and any musician if they have the talent to make it i very much doubt it i think it's you know more and more about connections and um being born in a certain privileged situation you know in the uk um seven percent of people are privately educated so a very small percentage uh but or it's huge proportion of privately educated people are dominate the music charts, the music industry. When mm. I was, I'm sounding old now, when I was young, it was, there was almost nobody, but now it's, I don't know, 60, 70% or something. So it's, you know, you, you know, you, you, you're well connected. You, you know, I, so, so I think, I, I think that's a, some justification for doing these things in a democratic, very localized way, some kind of assessment process, and um, I love that. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm it sure is it possible. Like, like, but it might not happen in your. Ways. 
It might not happen in your lifetime. I mean, like I, Van Gogh or Nick Drake or those people who nobody knew about them, but that now we we put them on these huge pedestals. So, yeah, that was one of the things that really I didn't understand that when I, I was young. Yeah, yeah, Nick's incredible, but sad, you know. And Van Gogh's sad. Like they they wanted that. They wanted that recognition, but they had zero social skills, and they weren't willing to play the game. They weren't willing to go to the parties. They weren't willing to bow before the people that were well-established. And you're not going to achieve success in your lifetime if you can't humble yourself to those structures, sadly. And that's mm. antithetical to the artist's identity of sacrificing themselves to the goal of being outside of society and coming at it from a completely different angle. Mm. Yeah, I've got a friend who's a great writer who has not achieved success for those reasons, I think. He says he wants to be famous posthumously. So, <laughs> right. that's at but, least uh, a realistic perspective on it. Uh, yeah, too I humble. Mean, too humble. You need to be. Uh, you need to want to be center of attention, don't you? I think I'm lucky that I like to <laughs> try and be set. You know, well, there's, a, there's you a machine. There's a machine. That, there's so. a machine that you have to become a participant mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. and I think that if you're someone who doesn't want to participate in the machine then the success is out of reach because you don't want to do the dance. You don't want yeah, to, to shake the it. hands and to glad hand and to make nice and to make the sacrifices to your editor who's like, I don't like this passage. And yeah. you just say whatever. My, my worry is that there's just... So the culture of stardom is a relatively new culture of super stardom. I, I would say that it's... You, we, it's maybe since the Beatles that mm -hmm. it has been a thing where you can really be on stage and television and these massive corporations produce stars and they put them on the tel uh, they put them on the screen and and young people look at it and they want to be it and now with all of the technology that we have available to us it is so easy and simple to put your attention into trying to become viral, to become huge on the stage. Yeah. And that's a very particular, pernicious art because the people who are making yeah. the TikToks and the people that are making the viral tweets, they're artists. There's no other way to put it. And what they're doing is they're surfing the wave of, of consciousness, of, of the public consciousness. They figure out how to feed into these loops that make it so attractive that someone can't mm. resist but to pass it along. Like there's a genre of TikTok videos that I've noticed, which is people will make disgusting food. Have you seen these? No. It is... It so. sounds horrifying. It's horrifying. It's like there was one that I watched the other day where a woman took uh, a bunch of spaghetti and put it in a blender and then made flour out of it, and then used the pasta flour to make noodles. So, like she, what? she, she, like took this blender pasta flour, and then put eggs in it, and made dough out of it, and then cut it into strips. But it, it's, I mean, and that's the most tame <sighs> one. There was, there, I've seen horrifying ones of people like taking a toilet and like filling it with nacho cheese and like salsa and then like using it as like a, a vessel for dipping out of. And the whole point of the art form is to create a video that horrifies you and that you don't understand and you share out of disgust and resentment towards yeah. the creators. It's, and there's, there's another genre 
which is that people will make nonsensical videos where they'll say mm. something. Uh, they'll they'll be like, I couldn't believe it un until I saw it. Wait until you see it. And then they show just a completely banal video of nothing happening. And it racks up millions and millions and millions of views because people will keep watching it, trying to figure out what it is that they're supposed to see. But the whole art form is the fact that there's nothing to see. And what they've done is they've captured your attention for long enough that you stare at it, that the algorithm thinks that there's something there and passes it along to the next person because they've seen you watch it 10 times. And they're like, well, somebody right. else will watch it 10 <laughs> times as well. And so... Technology has granted everyone access to stardom. And what people have done yeah. is they have applied themselves to driving the machine in this really hideous way into the creation of stuff that is not... It's the same thing that happened to the punk scene or something, right? Where you just tune into like, oh, well, it's this one guitar tone with this one kind of pentatonic riff and you just do this thing and then it just gets gross at some point. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, I was... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no. I, no, you go ahead. It's okay. I, I, I was going to go in a different direction. I want to hear what you have to say. Uh, no, it's just making me think. I was interviewed by uh, Phidias last week. Have you heard of this guy? Who's mm -mm. YouTube guy with millions of followers uh, through doing things like spending four days in a hamster ball and uh, his next project, oh, running a marathon barefoot in snow. And uh, his next project is going to be buried alive for 10 days. And uh, like, and he can't use the bathroom for seven days beforehand because he can't, you know, use the toilet in the coffin under the ground and, you know, buried in a coffin for 10 days at streaming it, you know. Uh, but then, but then his, his, his passion that he wants to do is interviewing people. And uh, <laughs> so he's doing this crazy stuff on, on one channel to make money i guess and then um 22 year old Cyp guy from cyprus uh but yeah i mean there is there are real dangers and this is social media is incredible but i think we we haven't yet learned to do it right have we i mean it's like well the algorithm isn't the algorithm isn't tuned to give you something that's good it's tuned to give you something that you'll watch yeah well, it's the profit motive, isn't it? And I, I, you know, I think, I think that is dangerous. That we're, it's it's all focused on. It's the profit motive, but it's also, I mean, there's things. I mean, companies like Twitter and uh, Facebook and so on. That there's very little need for them to be driven by comp. comp I mean, there is no competition, are they? In a way, these are almost natural natural monopolies. Uh, I think you know. Then United Nations had nationalized Twitter, and um, <laughs> you know, and I, I, you know, it's stopping us as a society taking control of these things and working out how to do them well. I always think about, like, you know, the crash of two thousand eight. You know, the great genius of these people working in finance, working out these complicated ways to chop up mortgages and securitize them, and 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 none of that was like aimed at helping people have secure, accom nice accommodation, none of that, you know, if only those skills could be put to uh, some good use. I think, you know, when we had Brexit here uh, a few years ago now, six years ago now, when my daughter was born, um, the slogan was take back control. And 
I think people were aiming at the wrong target, really. Think you know, take back control, thinking that the European Union is the is taking all our liberties off us or something. But I think you know, I think we do need to take back control of the way we're running our lives and the the way we structure society and the and social media, which is so complicated and so dangerous, work out democratically, locally, at a basic grassroots level how to do it well. And when every bit of your society is is dominated by the profit motive and the market and corporations that are bigger than nation states and you know can threaten to leave if a nation state are too big to fail or threaten to move to another jurisdiction if they don't get what they want, then we we can't take back control. And I you know I think that's a lot about a lot to do with the deep difficulties we're facing at the moment. I think historians in the future will, you know, a lot of people now are thinking, what's going on? What's all, what's all these problems at the moment? I think historians are back will think, well, obviously, right? You, you, you know, things were good. Things were getting better. Society was getting more equal for the 30 years after the war. Then from the 80s onwards, we decided, let's just tear it all up. Let's just go for Wild West capitalism where... You know, there's basically as few rules as possible and the corporations run the show and it's turned out shit and uh, people are struggling for something different, struggling for meaning. So, yeah, I think we do need to take ownership of these things. Yeah, I think the rush for stardom isn't part about wanting material success, but I think there's another element to it too, which is deeply spiritual, which is people lacking... This, they, want the, they do it because they want that sense of love. They want those likes. They want those views because they want to feel like people appreciate them and they're connecting with other people. And it seems like that is just yeah. another, it's equally strong motivator for people to Absolutely. rush towards stardom just because there's something they're not getting from the world otherwise. Yeah, I think people, I mean, this is one reason why I have hope that you, you, you could take the market out of more aspects of life because i think people are motivated by a huge range of factors they want social status they want uh you know often when people get very wealthy in britain what they try to do is get into the house of lords or you know get some honorary title or something because they they don't just want to be rich they want to be respected they want to be so i think you know if if and, and that's what we found after the war where we did as i say you know tax wealthy people at 80 90 percent they didn't stop doing stuff you know it's what you get used to isn't it and you still want you still want to have a little bit more than other people you still want um to see your life getting better you still want social respect you want to feel heard i get you know pretty much every week someone um you know sending me their thoughts about consciousness sending me a book sending and i i get so excited cuz I, I just can't cuz i've got young kids and i've got a busy job and i i can't read all of it i got a letter from someone in a us prison recently actually and um sending you know an official letter just sending me their thoughts on consciousness i wish i could read it all but it's get it gets less and less possible but i think people just people do want to be heard don't they and they want to feel a connection and they want to feel respected and yeah, what's the they root of meaning. that need? They want, they yeah, meaning, meaning. Ultimately, they want to feel that their life has meaning. That's that's what it all comes down to. Ultimately, right? Well, I think that they also want to participate in a conversation that they might not be able to have with with the people who are directly around them. If you're in a prison, 
I doubt that there's a lot of people who are sitting in the room with you who are interested in having a conversation about consciousness. And I'm sure that there's plenty of people that are incarcerated that are thinking about it, but it's not a forum where they can have it. And so you, by being a public figure, suddenly become the the lightning rod for them because they see you out in the world having these ideas and they're like, oh my God, a friend, someone who has thought about the things that I have thought about who will be able to correspond with me in a meaningful way because no one else can. And the tragedy is that one person who has these ideas cannot possibly field the the, the insights and and desires of an entire world full of people that yeah. are focused on them. I was going to say, if like I can't even imagine how big of a problem. That, like This is a big problem for us, and we have a tiny platform by comparison, and we're just swamped with emails from people who have theories. And they, and, I mean, one thing we've done is set up a Discord server so that they can all hang out with each other, and that's alleviated a lot of the strain on us because... Right. I do want to answer all these emails and I, I do want to think of yeah. people write tomes, like whole theses <laughs> thought out. I'm sure there's a lot of good ideas there. And I, I do, you know, I try to get to them eventually, but it's um, at some point it just becomes impossible. Yeah. And so connecting yeah. all those people together, I think, is, is the best thing I can think of. I mean, I think that algorithms have a lot of promise f- for this. There's a lot of buzz about, you know, GPT-4 and OpenAI and, and all of the new artificial intelligence tools. And I, I have this feeling that on one hand, it's terrifying because of the things that it might do to the world, because it's a technology that we don't fully understand. It's kind of a black box. We're letting it loose onto our systems and placing a lot of trust in it because it allows for greater productivity. And of course, capitalism wants to see increases in productivity. But people are worried because it's going to run amok. But I think that there is the ability to use these systems to do great things, where one of the things that I was thinking is, so you have something like Google search, which in the last few years has become less and less effective, where what you, oftentimes you'll put a query into Google and you won't get the kind of thing that you want, like we were sitting, we were, we went for a hike yesterday and it's been raining like crazy in California. And so it's greener than it's been in, man, probably 30 like years, 25 years at least. Cause we moved here in 97 and that was my first memory of California is this really verdant green place. And it's the first spring where it is that again. And we were sitting there and we were looking at this carpet of California poppies. They're this very distinctive bright orange flower. And we were curious, because they grow everywhere, is there, it, does it have opium? Are we going to get right. sleepy by sitting in this field? <laughs> yeah. We're thinking of the Wizard of Oz. And so I type it into Google, and instead of pulling some blog where some you know, garage chemist has looked at all of the alkaloids in the poppies and, and qualified them and done some kind of examination. And you know that blog exists. You know that there's somebody somewhere who's done this just out of sheer passion and interest. It's just, it's like a DEA website, a really dense, na- like PNAS paper, and then just all of these kinds of low, low value links that don't allow you to sink mm-hmm. deeper into the magic of the human mind. And I think that the, the, the way that the new algorithms scrape the internet, 
where they're able to contain all of this information has the ability to maybe change the way that Google search works, where what if a company like Google devoted some fraction of their profits to actually growing to actually growing the ecosystem of the internet, to actually funding the people who are writing the, the crazy blogs where they're able to pursue these esoteric interests in the name of then using that new knowledge that's been generated to power the second order algorithms that use that knowledge to give you the, the overview that you want if you want some brief chart. Out of all of it the seems like a control problem at the end of the day, just like in religion or in art or funding of science where somebody's making values decisions about, like they don't want you to look up the, uh, the opium contents of the California poppy. Somebody doesn't want you to. I don't know. My brother works in search and he, that's not... That he's, it's how, do, not how does it happen then? It happens because of the way that search is structured in terms of reputation and mm. the, the value of a link, right? So when you Google something like that, the top results that come up are going to be the results that are... Trusted. Trusted. And obviously the DEA is a trusted resource on opium content of plants and the history of opium, and the history of, of, of use, and so are these nature papers. And the, the weird blogosphere probably would, you know, if you dove in, if you dived into that world, you might end up at a blog that's teaching you how to extract opium from poppies, and they don't want that. And so there is some, some aspect of the control problem where what they want is they want to be able to give you the results that don't put you afoul of the law because they, that they themselves are worried about it. And so there has to be this dual process of changing the laws to make it so that information is not so controlled because we have a structured society right now where the, the things that you can talk about when sitting in a room with a person are not the same things that you are able to say in public or on the internet as a reputable source. And that's a really strange cleavage because we've never before been in a situation where so many of us get our information from the internet instead of just talking to the people around us. And so it creates an artificial sense of what the information and what the knowledge looks like that is very, very different from what you would get if you just talked to somebody. Yeah, that's really, really interesting, Anastasia. I, and I, th I mean, I, th I think this does connect... I think with what I've been saying about what worries me most about the ultra-capitalism we live in is the limitation on human creativity and human ingenuity if it's all focused on hits, on the profit motive, on, you know, the next buck, uh, rather than using something that happens maybe a little bit better in academia. It's not perfect at all, but, uh, you know, I'm I'm not trying to get the next book with what I write next. I'm pursuing the questions that matter to me and talking to other people who want to do that. If we could, in something like the way you're talking, have tech, you know, working with higher motives, as, as it were, working out of their own sense of creativity and wanting to make the world a better place. Um, you know, returning to this spiritual little bit, you know, hero of mine was... Um, yeah, Teilhard de Jardin, so if you've heard of him, the uh, late 19th century, early 20th century paleontologist and heretical Catholic priest hmm. who was, um, uh, I guess, around at the time when 
you know, the church is thinking what to do about evolution, but he was just inspired by evolution. You know, he was into dinosaurs and so on, but also he saw it on a, a cosmic level, you know, mm. that, that, that the universe and humanity are evolving to something greater. And, um, some people credit him with predicting the internet because he thought, so he looked back in time and saw these great leaps of life and consciousness and self-awareness and reason. And he thought the next leap would be human beings becoming more informationally connecting, connected up and that this would lead to a new form of life, a new form of consciousness, um, a new kind of organism. And, um, and yeah, I just feel that there's such potential to these extraordinary technologies, but I don't trust, I don't trust them to the market. You know, I mean, I, I appreciate the worries about, okay, what are the alternatives? That's hard too, but we could be doing so much more in, in, in precisely the ways you pointed to, Anastasia, if we could find other ways. I just, I, I, I just don't, I have more faith in humanity that we can find other ways of doing things slowly, see what works, see if we can do this a little bit outside the market, you know, that we can find other ways of doing things that aren't totally dominated in their core essence by, by the profit motive. We uh, Early in the days of our podcast, we interviewed this guy, uh, Isaac Arthur, who has a really interesting YouTube channel. It's called uh, Science Fiction. No, I don't know. Isaac Arthur will get you there. Yeah. So he, he basically is a explorer of the ways that the future might possibly work. And so he does these really beautiful YouTube videos and each YouTube video is on a specific topic of the structure of societies, what space habitats might look like, how to build a space elevator, um, you know, cyborgs, whatever. Everything that falls into the realm of science fiction on his YouTube channel, he spends time exploring what those things might look like if they really came into reality. And he pulls from the entire corpus of science fiction history and philosophy and technology. And it's very, very interesting. He had a really, I think, vital perspective on the future, which is that it's not a monolith of culture. It's a plurality of culture that you'll never get a cohesive whole where the entire planet believes in one thing or in one mode of, of organizing itself because that's just not a good reflection of the lives that people lead. Somebody who lives in the inner city in Detroit has different needs and preferences and requirements than somebody who lives on you know, the island of Samoa to somebody who lives in the upper Arctic of Canada. These are people that have completely different concerns and requirements. And there might be some thread of, of fundamental human needs that are, that are unifying, but the way that they would want to fulfill those needs is different. And we have this tendency of building progressively larger and larger systems in which we place people that are catch-alls. This is the mode in which everyone needs to align themselves because this is the value that has been set either by the UN or some other larger body that decides that this is the culture now going forward. Everyone will live like this. And that's just not realistic because what it does is it astroturfs the differences between humans that are informed by 
the physical limitations of their day-to-day environment. And so I always wonder how it is that we can create a system that both unifies people, but also allows them to embody these differences in a way that is harmonious, as opposed to returning to the eternal war between states. Yeah, you mentioned metaphysical, what was it, metaphysical harmony? I'm really curious Mm -hmm, if that's mm -hmm. playing into what we're dancing around here. Uh, What, at at the very start, psychophysical harmony? Oh, psychophysical, that was it, sorry. Uh, so, oh, shall I, t- shall I say something about that? Yeah, is, please, um, please, please, please do. This is, uh, yeah, something like a handful of philosophers are talking about at the moment, and yeah, I'm, I'm convinced it's going to change the world. It's, it's a, I think it's a prop. So it's a subtle problem, uh, and it's, it's a hard problem to get. Not because it's kind of complicated or technical. It's because it's asking us to. It's suggesting we need to explain something which seems, which is just such a totally obvious, mundane, um, trivial sounding fact of, of, of life that it doesn't feel like it needs explaining. Um, but, but, but I think it does. So, psychophysical harmony is the challenge of explaining how come consciousness and behavior tend to fit together in a rationally appropriate way. Um, So the most obvious examples, right? Um, You feel pain, something hurts you, you tend to avoid it, right? If something, if you like something, if it feels good, you tend to go for it, right? And now this just seems like totally, like, of course, if something hurts, you're going to avoid it, right? Um, But, I do think we need to explain this if, as for what it's worth, the majority of philosophers believe there's no logical connection between consciousness and behavior. Um, you know, th- there's, so let me, I mean, give you, let me introduce you to one of my imaginary friends to sort of make this clear. Talk about in one of my papers, imag- inverted Ian, right? So inverted Ian, it's my imaginary friend, who lives in a parallel universe, who, uh, he, uh, he loves burgers and he, he, you know, he, he, oh, sorry, I've got it the wrong way around. <laughs> he just, he hates burgers. He absolutely oh. repulses him, the eating them. It just disgusts him. Uh, and he loves getting his body ripped apart by sharp knives. Whoa. But inverted Ian lives in this weird possible world, uh, where the laws of nature are a bit different. And in this possible world, when you consciously yearn for something, that makes you avoid it. And when you consciously repulsed by something, that makes you go for it, right? So in Ian, inverted Ian ends up behaving just like someone in our universe who loves burgers and hates and has a healthy dislike mm. of getting that getting chopped up, right? So now there's something ridiculous when you tell this to people, they're like, what the what the hell are you talking about? This is just bullshit. There's something ridiculous about this, but we need to think very carefully about what is absurd about the character I've just described. This is what, you know, philosophy is all about, you know, thinking very carefully. What I want to say is it's not a logical absurdity. There's nothing contradictory or incoherent about what I just described. It's not like a square circle where it just doesn't make sense. It's, it's rationally coherent. What's absurd about it is that this person is doing 
the total opposite of what's rationally appropriate, right? Because if you like something, it's it's rational to go and get it. If you if something hurts you, it's rational to avoid it. I mean, all things being equal, obviously you can power through suffering for some greater good, but but this guy's doing the total opposite, right? But if we just live in this meaningless universe where you know what things do is just determined by mathematical laws, why should Con- what conscious states do be what's rationally appropriate you know why should why shouldn't they do why shouldn't pain cause you to go for something or to cause you to just paint everything blue or something and i mean the final thing to say on this i mean it's it's a really it's really hard to to persuade people as i mean maybe this is bullshit but i don't think it is but the final th- people what people always say is well what about evolution evolution solely explains this but if you think evolution explains it, I, I think you haven't got the problem because any evolutionary explanation of the character of our consciousness already assumes a solution to this because, uh, you know, natural selection is only going to make me is only going to make me feel pain when my body is damaged if I'm going to respond rationally to that pain and so avoid getting my body damaged. But that's the very thing we're trying to explain. So like, like, I mean, the philosopher David Hume famously, you know, helped us to see that there's no inevitability about causation. What something does is just dependent on the laws of nature. If the laws of nature had been different, it would have done something different. So, you know, what pain does is just dependent ultimately on the laws of nature. So if the laws of nature had been different, pain could have done something different. So why, why does what pain does, why is it rationally appropriate? And the same is with, with with every other aspect of conscious experience, really. So that was a bit long-winded, but that's really the core of what is exercising a lot of philosophers at the moment. Why is there this rational harmony between consciousness and behavior? I have an immediate thought of that it's cultural. So I was reading, uh, what is it, uh, Bernal Diaz del Castillo. He He was with Cortez when they were conquering the Aztecs. And so he's one of the the only primary sources for the culture of Mesoamerica from the Spanish perspectives. He was actually like with the expedition and he was writing it. And it's a really it's a, it's a really well translated book and so it reads kind of this fantastic epic. But a lot of it there's a lot of instances where he talks about human sacrifice. And the human sacrifice in Mesoamerica appears to have run along two parallel and contradictory paths where there were the people who were sacrificed who were conquered they were taken they were they were either prisoners of war or they were undesirables or there was some there's some role that they fulfilled where they didn't want to be sacrificed and so they were you know pulled up weeping to the top of the pyramid where they were placed on the sacrificial stone that's very much in line with our own position of being ripped apart by knives but there were people in the society who every year were elected as a position of honor to be sacrificed. And they would spend, so on a festival day, they would sacrifice someone and they would elect the next person who the next year would be sacrificed on that same festival day. And they would occupy this position of of great respect and renown in the culture and they would get all of these benefits from it and they would be this kingly, princely, godly figure that walked among the mortals. And when their time came to be ripped apart by knives, they would go into it willingly carrying with them 
the, 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 the full portent of what it was that they were embodying. And so they had, a, they had an attraction towards being ripped apart by knives because it meant that they were doing something meaningful in the act of sacrificing themselves. And so it seems like that's the key ingredient. It's not, so you can't imagine a culture surviving where everyone is getting ripped apart by knives because, to go back to an evolutionary perspective, that prevents you from reproducing. And that dies quickly. And so it's, a, it's irrational to have a culture where everyone is ripped apart by knives before they get to reproduce because that doesn't work out for the society. The society very quickly ends because that's not, that's not even a mimetic pattern that you can inherit because it will destroy you momentarily. But you can have a small select few who you pick to be ripped apart by knives that are like, hell yeah, I'll do that. No problem. And so I think the rationality for it comes from the cultural context of what it me- what the knife means, so to speak. Mm. Yeah, that is absolutely fascinating case. Although, although, but notice in the in the scenarios you're describing, they all assumed psychophysical harmony. They all assumed that if you like something, you're going to go for it. If you, so your people, you know, they had this weird desire to be ripped apart by knives, but they went for it. And um, and when you're saying, you know, well, if everyone wanted to be ripped apart by li- knives, then they wouldn't survive very well. But that's already assuming that if you like something, you're going to go for it. If you don't like something, you're going to avoid it. And of course, George Orwell famously said, you know, to attend to something under your nose is... Um, is a very difficult thing to do. That it's just like, of course that's true. Of course, if you like something, you're gonna. Uh, but in terms of evolution, right? This inverted in guy. If the laws of nature have been different, if whenever you yearn for something, you avoided it, and whenever you uh, were repulsed by something, you went for it, then evolution would have we would have evolved such that we hated food and drink and sex and we loved getting our bodies ripped apart so so the the, the whole evolution story presumes psychophysical harmony that, that there's this core mystery at, at the heart of all this i mean let's i mean a very simpler way of putting it um is i mean dave david chalmers the australian philosopher started off m- contemporary philosophy discussions by talking about the hard problem of consciousness and that phrase has kind of caught on to an extent and why he was using that word is because previously lots of scientists had said they were explaining consciousness but really what they when you look at the details of their theory what they were explaining is some kind of behavior that kind of goes along with consciousness like the behavior of a system to monitor its own states uh you know the behavior some of these ais can do that they can monitor their own states they can learn or um certain behavioral capacities like being alert where you can sort of take in information these are all sort of things to do with behavioral functioning information processing and Chalmers called those the easy problems of consciousness i mean easy quote unquote right these are still incredibly difficult challenges to explain these complex functions but what he said what he called the hard problem was something different it was about the inner experience you know okay whenever you've explained 
any of these complicated behavioral functionings, you've still got this question. Does the system have an inner life? Does it feel? Does it have an inner experience? That's what Chalmers called the hard problem. So it seems in all these cases, we can distinguish the behavior bit. So take pain. You've got the behavior bit, you know, screaming and running away, trying to stop it happening. But you've got the feely bit, you know, ah, it's terrible. And as soon as you can distinguish those two things, even conceptually, which I think you can, some philosophers think you can't. Daniel Dennett would say you can't. I think you can. As soon as you can distinguish them, then there's a question, well, surely natural selection is only going to care about the behavior bit, right? Natural selection just wants us to behave as though we're in pain. Natural selection doesn't give a shit about your inner life, like the feel of it. So, so why, why have we got consciousness at all? Why didn't, you know... I mean, imagine if you could get, you know, replace all the things we do with a mechanism that didn't have any feely bit, but just did all the same stuff. That would survive just as well. So fundamentally, I think I've, this is the easier way to explain it. I think, you know, th there's a deep mystery about why we evolved consciousness, given that natural selection just cares about behavior. And it seems you can imagine all of the stuff we do being done by an unfeeling mechanism what Chalmers called a zombie. And that would survive just as well. So why, why aren't we unfeeling mechanisms that survive just as well? Why do we have an inner life at all? And um, yeah, that's really one of the big focuses of my new book. I should have started off with that. that. <laughs> I explained that the wrong way around. It, I, in fact, that's how I do it in the book. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you. I, I start off with that problem and then I get into this problem. The problem within the problem is the psychophysical harmony. And that is just like, Every time I say it to someone, they say, what the, you know, what, if you two are too polite, probably, but every, people always, what the hell are you talking about? This is bullshit. But, uh, no, I don't I, think I, it's bullshit. But, yeah, but anyway, I, the, the, the evolution bit is the, is the starting point, I think. Why did we evolve consciousness? Sorry, go on. Well, it, it seems to me that what you're saying in a, a somewhat, uh, uh, like poetic way is that the circumstances for consciousness are baked into the laws of nature. Like the fact that the laws of nature are as they are and that ripping yourself to shreds with knives doesn't work out for you in any capacity tends itself towards the conscious systems that we have right now. I, I, is that a, a fair way of restating it? Um, say that again, sorry. Uh, just the, the, the production of consciousness occurs because it must, because the laws of nature are, are, are tuned in right. such a way. Right. And it, it seems like the, like the nature of pain, in a sense, has, has evolved because that's the way that it must evolve. Like pain circuits mm -hmm. exist from a behavioral standpoint. They exist on encrustations at like our, our earliest you know, bacteria will tend away from 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 toxic substances. They 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 move away. Consciousness being this awareness of what's happening and this tendency to react to it. And people who don't feel pain tend to die really young. Mm. Yeah, it, it just seems like what you're yeah. So yeah. so certainly right. Certainly, human beings have evolved, and and I I do believe obviously human beings have evolved consciousness, but. Yeah, in us, if you don't feel pain, you die. But it seems coherent that there could have been creatures that 
didn't actually feel pain, but had mechanisms that did exactly the same job. I mean, let's just imagine, you know, with, with robots, I, 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 artificial intelligence is rapidly expanding all the time. We will one day presumably have creatures that can pass the Turing test. This is, you know, Alan Turing's test for whether something is intelligent, that it, its behavioral responses are just like a human being. But it's still a question, right? Is it conscious? And we could, I mean, let's say for the sake of discussion, maybe, let's say for the sake, nobody knows this, but maybe silicon things are not conscious, right? Whatever you make from silicon, let's just say for the sake of discussion, it doesn't feel anything. But maybe one day we could create a silicon robot that behaves just as just as well as we do. And, you know, you stick a knife in it, it screams and runs away. And maybe we can get them to reproduce and their kids respond to, respond to bodily damage in this equally effective way. But there's no consciousness. There's no feeling. There's no inner life. They're just complicated mechanisms. So as I say, some philosophers... But wouldn't those complicated mechanisms like just be it... Wouldn't that just be its feelings at that point? I mean, if it had... Comp- it's like you'd well, basically just recreated not, human beings at that point. I don't think so. I I, I don't think so. I, I, it seems to me totally coherent that they could be... I mean, unless... What, what you're saying there implicitly is that when we talk about feelings, we're really implicitly talking about behavior. So when I say Sarah's in pain, I mean that she's has an inner state that causes her to run away. and It's like I a complex motivational that. structure, I guess. The complex motivational routines that we operate, some of them aren't that complex in terms of the knife running away from it. But if, I guess, so, so this is a, sorry, I interrupted you, Gom. Well, I'm just, the one thing that like, I, I was a little bit like, uh, was, was when you said that, the zo- like that as a bunch of zombies would have a successful society because I'm like I don't know like I don't know if that's an evolutionarily successful situation compared to a conscious society it just seems like it does have evolutionary benefits well uh, so I mean, let me hold on I want to make sure that that we're 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 untangling the the core of this which is that what it sounds like the the model that you're talking about is uh, a zombie that is able to mechanistically feel that there is something happening that could be parsed as pain. So if you classify pain as something that is uh, antithetical to the organism's survival, that it can parse that, react to it, but not feel the whole capacity of what pain means in the internal landscape of suffering. How is that not yeah, so just feeling? Yeah, how is that not just so the idea is it would be, I mean, a lot of our, a huge amount of our brain functioning is non-conscious, right? There's these incredibly complicated mechanisms that regulate our, uh, you know, breathing and our temperature and so on, but there's no consciousness or so many, most people think. Just imagine that taking over, those kind of unconscious mechanisms taking over all of your behavioral functioning, but you behave just the same. That seems to, so. The, so the zombie it, it behaves in exactly the way pain makes you behave, but it doesn't actually feel anything. So this is the core of the consciousness debate, right? Take you got David Chalmers on the wrong side says these are just different things: the behavior, the behavioral functioning, and the feely bit, the inner life, 
Whereas someone like Daniel Dennett says, what the fuck are you talking about? These are just, these are just the same thing. Mm. When we say someone's conscious, that is just a fancy way of talking about their behavior. Mm. Uh, to my mind, and, and yeah, m- m- maybe, maybe you're more on the, on the Dennett side, Jalo. I don't know, but, but I'm more on the, on the Chalmers side, but what I'm saying to David Chalmers, I'm disagreeing with him as well. I'm saying your position gets you in deep shit that you haven't realized yet. You just think you can say, okay, there's these two different things, the physical stuff and the consciousness stuff, but you know, the rest, we tell the rest of the normal scientific story about how we evolve and so on. No, you can't do that. If you think consciousness and behavior can be separated out, then we've got a problem because natural selection only cares about behavior. Natural selection, that, you know, as long as you behave in the right way. Um, so, I mean, this could be an argument that Chalmers was wrong all along and we should just go with Daniel Dennett. There is no hard problem of consciousness. It's all a load of rubbish. But it seems to me that's wrong because I just, I just don't think that's what we mean when we talk about feelings, just talking about behavioral functioning. It seems to me totally coherent that you could have a robot, a system, chat, chat you know, one of, I mean, the, the future version of, 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 these, of these language programs that behaves just the same, but there's no inner life at all. And if that makes sense, why didn't we evolve like that? That's the... Um, well, I, th- I just think that the inner life is what organizes the motivational structures that are necessary to make the actions that are successful. Like, I almost think it comes down to... Meaning. I was thinking really hard about this this morning. What? Meaning. Meaning, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what mi- what is a human being? Like, if you try to come up with a definition for a human being, I was thinking about it, and I'm like what human beings do that no other animals do and what what these machines don't seem capable of is we seem to have this unlimited capacity to compound conceptions. We can take a concept, say the location of two bodies in a room, of two objects, and we can relate them in an interesting way. Okay, this is a cup, this, this cup does a thing. And we can infinitely abstract those and we can come up with new relationships and new ideas as a result of it. And it's not clear to me that any other organism is capable of doing that unlimited order of abstraction and making new concepts out of other concepts. And I don't think the machines are able to do it because they can't generate their own prompts. Like they're not thinking of ideas the way that human beings do. And it seems like that, that silent internal consciousness is, is what allows us to dominate the planet because we're able to actually sit around and have feelings and thoughts and, and really, I mean, oh, sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead. I mean, maybe I'm not. Maybe we don't disagree. I mean, I, I mean, here's another way of putting the point. Uh, I mean, I, I do think we evolve consciousness, but to make sense of that, I think consciousness and conscious understanding, and as you say, Anastasia, understanding a meaning must make a behavioral difference when it emerges. Mm-hmm. So to see the debate, I mean, I debate a lot with the theoretical physicist Sean Carroll. We're going to be debating it in person for the first time in in September in in New York as part of um I, I won some money to spend three years trying to work out if the universe is conscious and it's it's going to fund this debate among other things. So Sean Carroll thinks everything that happens is determined by the equations of physics. You know that that determines that every level physics runs the show, and I think if you if you have that view, then it's hard to see why consciousness would ever evolve, right? If Because if physics is running the show, then that's going to determine how, a cre- how an organism behaves, whether or not it has consciousness. 
it's going to behave in the in the way physics determines. So then it is something of a mystery. Um, uh, what, why, why we have evolved consciousness for consciousness and conscious understanding to make a difference? It has to, in some sense, override physics. Not in the sense of contradicting physics, but in the sense of supplementing physics. How a system behaves. It has to make a difference because it's conscious and because it has the particular kind of consciousness it does. So yeah, so so in a in a way, shallow. I I I I don't disagree with you that it, that in in us consciousness does make a difference, and it must have made a huge difference for us to evolve evolved it. The point is, it's just difficult to see that if you have this reductionist story of physics running the show. Oh, for why, sure. Why that would come to pass? I mean, I used to say. Uh, like when I was younger, I used to say I hate nature. Like everything I do is to to fight against physics, right? I mean, even moving my body across the room, physics wants me to just sit on the couch all day, basically. And so I feel like that's that's in large part the conscious. That's the battle that plays out all day long, every day. Is like screw physics. I'm gonna do what I want with this world. It's like okay. Physics is the rule set for what is possible, but that rule set is vast. You can be a ruminant animal with seven stomachs eating the most poisonous plants. You can be uh, a, a hummingbird. You can be a giraffe. You can be a human. The, the, the desire is what allows you to shape the body. And that desire is the key driver that allows for differentiation because if it was just physics and not will at some point, what you would have is you would have uniformity of form. But because you don't have uniformity... Everything would be a sphere. Everything would be a sphere or what I... Yeah, probably. And so by virtue of having this diversity of form, I think that what you're seeing is the limitation of what physics can explain because physics gets to a point where it says, these are the rules... But the rules are a vast spread of possibility and will and desire and consciousness is what takes the physical body and shapes it. Mm. As a human, you cannot become a fish. I mean, there's people that I've met that want to become a fish and believe that technology like will one day allow us to do that. I mean, it would be cool. I think about being a bird all the time. They look like they have fun. But there's a limit. And... The what Shiloh was talking about was this this ability to engineer the prompt is what consciousness is. It is the eternal prompt engineers, the voice inside of you, the idea that's like, well, what if we what if we tracked the stars and planted stuff at the same time each year and then stored it? And that creates the, 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 the space into which a blossoming can occur that creates everything that's built on top of the manipulation of the physical limitations that you beforehand were bound by. And so yeah. there's a huge tendency in physics to, be, to say that physics is the foundation for everything and you can derive everything from those, from, from those rules. But I think that what it lacks is this explanation for the plurality of organization. Yeah, one way to think about it, um, the great um, 19th century French physicist uh, Laplace had this idea that we now call Laplace's demon. Uh, he didn't call it a demon, but I don't know why we call it a demon. You know, this super intelligence who has unlimited reasoning 
faculties and it knows all of physics um, at a particular moment. Could that demon work out everything that's going to happen? I mean, it's connected to determinism, doesn't it, and free will. And <coughs> excuse me. Laplace thought the demon would be able to work out everything that's going to happen to the end of time. Um, if things get slightly more complicated with with quantum quantum probabilities, but there you can say Laplace's demon will be able to work out the objective probabilities of what's going to happen next. But I think I think I think Laplace was wrong. I think mm. um, my 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 colleague Nancy Cartwright is a a very distinguished philosopher of science. Um, and she thinks we should think of the laws of physics as ceteris paribus laws, all things being equal. They tell you what's going to happen. You know, F equals MA tells you what's going to happen unless something else gets in the way. Mm. And as systems evolve, new new causal considerations kick in. And I I see consciousness as as part of the the, the new causal considerations that kick in. And you know, I mean, I don't think we've got any reason at all. Not only do I have philosophical reasons to do with the evolution of consciousness, why I disagree with Sean Carroll, I'm getting preparing for the debate now. I yeah. don't think we have any re any empirical reason on his side. I mean, the experiments we do, which our physics is based on, involve, you know, very small numbers of particles, typically. And, you know, in terms of our knowledge of the brain, it is still incredibly early one of one of the most influential books on my thinking on the brain is uh, Matthew Cobb's The Idea of the Brain. You should get him him on a wonderful intellectual history of the brain. I mean, he's not at all sympathetic to the kind of philosophy I I have, but anyway, I love his book about the brain. And you know, the the take home message is sort of we know a lot about the top and the bottom. You know, we know a lot about the basic chemistry, how neurons fire, how neurotransmitters work, and we know a lot about large scale functions of the brain. You know what bits of the brain do. So the big and the small, what we're almost clueless on is is the is is how those big functions are realized at the cellular level, how it works basically. We don't know how the brain works, and until we know more about how it works, we just have no clue as to whether it's all reducible to chemistry, reducible to physics. There's just there's just we just don't know enough to settle that, and I think that can't be true because. If that were true, I think we probably wouldn't have evolved consciousness. If it's all just physics running the show, mm -hmm. natural selection doesn't give a shit if consciousness, if an inner life pops up, as long as, you know, you behave in the right way. And if that's a term by physics, nothing else matters. So I think consciousness must have made a behavioral difference. Our, our, and what I talk about in the book, actually, is um, what I call experiential understanding. When philosophers and scientists focus on consciousness, they tend to talk about very primitive things like well it's it's not it's, it's also very sophisticated but seeing color hearing sound pain these sort of brute sensations but i'm inclined to think you know consciousness is permeated with meaning and understanding when i look around me i don't just see colors and shapes i see a camera faces a wall i see what words mean if if my child is crying I see her sadness on on her face. So, our experiential understanding are is a matter of how our understanding of the world, our grasp of what things are or means, permeates our conscious life, and we've evolved that too. So that must have made a difference when it emerged. And 
I think, you know, we're not really in first base, a first base in sort of thinking properly about how to make progress on these issues. But and it's certainly going to, it's certainly going to change. It's going to certainly change the way things go going forward. Right. We're shaping our, our future very consciously. I mean, that's, that's what the national and social and cultural level discussions are really about. So it's, it's hard to imagine that it wouldn't have a meaningful outcome for better or for worse. Hmm. But yeah, I know you got to run. It's been gotta, really, really fun to talk hope. to you. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, hope. guys. Yeah. That was a really enjoyable conversation. It was nice to have a more free flowing dis- conversation to what I'm used to. I guess most interviews I do are sort of, what is panpsychism? Why should we think it's true? And I've, I've done those pre prepared answers so, so much. And, yeah. Well, nice thank you for rolling with it. Yeah. It's, we're, trying to, we're trying to spark a new niche over here. Everybody's already heard all those other podcasts. So we are here for you. Yeah. a good idea. But yeah, thank you so much. And I, what's, I hope the, we can... what's the book called? It's called Why the Purpose of the Universe, coming out with Oxford University Press in, in November. Yeah.